You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello students, welcome to the fourth class for the lectures on nature and grace. And this class will be on the law of God. In the other classes, I pointed out to you that the ultimate end of human life has to be something supernatural. It has to be communion with God. This is because of the presence in man of the intellect, because the intellect as a power naturally tends to know the cause of all the effects known by us as we look around ourselves in the world. And in order for this to be final and complete, it's absolutely necessary that a person have the ability to arrive at the vision of God in heaven. But there is no human power by which this can be done. And so, it is necessary that we receive grace. In the former class, Lesson 3, I pointed out to you that all the various states of nature turn around the presence of grace in the soul in such a way that it was grace and the integrity of human life that was the formation of Adam before the sin in the state of original justice. It was the loss of grace that caused Adam to experience the state of the original sin. The return of the gift of grace to us who are now still in the state of original sin in the sense that we still have concupiscence, we still have a tendency to sin, but now we have hope we can work out our salvation through Jesus Christ supporting us. And finally, that this grace is a preparation for us to go to heaven. Now, at the end of the last class, I pointed out to you that the two principal punishments for the original sin were those tendencies which go to make up a free choice. A free choice, which was what Adam and Eve sinned with, is made up of a combination of intellect and will. And the defect in the intellect is ignorance, which Adam experiences after the sin. And the defect in the will is a tendency to disobedience and manipulation, which is called malice. God did not leave the human race bereft in this condition. He did not allow the human race to commit the sin in order to leave the human race without aid. Immediately in Genesis 3.15, God promises a redeemer. And then as a result of this promise, he begins to prepare a community to receive this Redeemer. The proper preparation for this community then begins with aids or medicines which seek to remedy for the two principal defects of the original sin. The first medicine attacks the defect of ignorance. 
And this is the giving of the law or the Torah. The second medicine is the remedy for the defect of the will, which will be grace, again, brought to us through Jesus Christ. Right now, what we want to talk about is the remedy, which is the Torah. The first step to remedy the darkness of the intellect concerning divine providence was to give the law. The Jews held the law in great and high esteem. There's a wonderful line in the Broadway musical, Fiddler on the Roof, where the poor Jewish man, at the turn of this century in Russia, sings about what he would do if he had some money, if he were a rich man. And one of the things he says is, if I were a rich man, I'd have the time that I need to sit in the synagogue and pray, and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. The holy books he is speaking of are the book of the law and the prophets. The book of the law is primarily comprised by the first five books of the Old Testament, referred to as the Pentateuch, or the Torah. The Pentateuch points out the need for the law because the human race wandered for centuries in darkness and ignorance. The need for this law to help us to understand just who we are and what we are all about. The prophets explain that this law is primarily about love. Now, before we formally examine the law as given by God to help to remedy for the weakness of the original sin, let's just remember what law is generally. There are several characteristics that go up to make every law. The first is that the law is a direction of the will by the intellect. Therefore, in contradistinction to some other ideas about law, law is not primarily about will, although it does engage the will. Law is primarily about reason. It's reason which expresses the truth, and then the truth of one person engages the other person in order to will what's good. The law is normally made for the purpose of having a person realize a good that they would not realize if left their own. This is traditionally called the common good as opposed to the private good. Everybody can seek their private good on their own, but they can't seek the common good without the rule and direction of the law. Thirdly, the person who has the right to make the law is the one who's given the care of the community. And the manner in which he makes this law demands that the law be expressed. The traditional term for this is promulgated. The subjects who are going to obey the law have to have the ability to know it. Now, these characteristics are summarized in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in a famous definition of law given by Thomas Aquinas. And you can see it in both number 1951 and in number 1976. Law is a rule of conduct enacted by competent authority for the sake of the common good. And in 1976, we find the definition 
complete, enacted there would mean promulgated, I suppose, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who is in charge of the community. The two great pillars on which the salvation of the human race rests are the law and grace. The law being the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, but also included in it the New Covenant as we shall see, and grace being its final realization. The way the Catechism puts this in 1949, called to beatitude, that's the vision of God, but wounded by sin, man stands in need of salvation from God. Divine help comes to him in Christ through the law that guides him and the grace that sustains him. So here we see these two great pillars explained in this first number. Now traditionally speaking, the church following Thomas Aquinas has been accustomed to distinguish four major kinds of law. And I just want to do that to situate us where we're going to be for this lesson. The first kind of law is the ordinance of reason that is found in the mind of God when he creates the world. All the natures of all the things are found there. God in his ordering providence directs these things, and these things even include the accidents, the colors, the place, those kinds of things. This law is called the eternal law, and it's the seed on which all the natures of the things that exist and their activities are supported and directed. It's the initiation, you could say, of divine providence within God. Now this initiation is sufficient for all other beings, all other things that are created, except those with freedom. Because in order that we who have freedom be able to live according to divine providence, it's also necessary for us to be able to personally understand what this direction is in the divine mind. When man understands this direction, we call this the natural law. Now you'll find these two laws contained in the Catechism. In 1951, the Catechism says, the moral law presupposes the rational order, established among creatures for their good to serve their final end by power, wisdom, and goodness of the Creator. All law finds its first and ultimate truth in the eternal law. That's the mind in God. Law is declared and established by reason as a participation in the providence of God. Such an ordinance of reason is what one calls law. And our participation in the mind of God is referred to as the natural law. In the Catechism, it explains, this law is natural, not in reference to the nature of irrational beings. In other words, the eternal law is sufficient to guide the animals and the plants and the rocks. It's not like laws of nature in Isaac Newton not in reference to irrational beings, beings with no reason, but because reason which decrees it properly belongs to human nature. The natural law, the Catechism continues, present in the heart of each man and established by reason is universal in its precepts. 
1955, there's a quotation from Thomas Aquinas, the natural law is nothing other than the light of understanding placed in us by God. Through it, we know what we must do and what we must avoid. God has given this law or light at the creation. So, the natural law is our participation in God's providence or direction of the world. Now, this is not sufficient, however, to experience all good. Because since we live in a community or live in society, in order for the natural law to be well-lived in a group, it's also necessary that there be legislators who express to us what it is that we should do acting in common. This law is traditionally referred to as human law. And it finds its origin in the mind of a human legislator who expresses things like the speed limit, for example. Now, if these three kinds of law were sufficient in order to guide and direct the human race in original sin, people wouldn't be wandering in ignorance. In fact, it's because of the weakness of the original sin, because man has lost intimacy with God and grace, that he really doesn't fully understand in divine providence what his basic obligations are. And the reason is, because of this wound, his intellect is in a certain sense darkened even in what it could know by reason alone. The Catechism expresses this. The precepts of the natural law are not perceived by everyone clearly and immediately. Before the sin they would have been, but after the sin they're not. In the present situation, this is 1960, sinful man needs grace and revelation so moral and religious truths may be known by everyone with facility, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error. The natural law provides revealed law and grace with the foundation prepared by God and in accordance with the work of the Spirit. The natural law then is the foundation for, but insufficient, to guide man to his ultimate destiny, which would be the vision of God in heaven, and to in any sense ensure that all men would with firm certainty know what the will of God is for them in creation. And so we have a fourth kind of law, which is the law expressed to us in the scriptures, also called the revealed law or the divine positive law. The way this is put in the Catechism in 1952 is this. There are different expressions of the moral law, all of them interrelated. Eternal law, number one, the source in God of all law. Number two, natural law. Number three, reveal law, comprising the old law and the new law, or the law of the gospel. And finally, civil and ecclesiastical laws, which would be human laws, civil and canon law. So, if we want to summarize law, we have to talk about this whole picture. We have the eternal law, which has its source in the mind of God. This is expressed in the natural law, which has its source in the mind of man, which reflects the mind of God. This natural law is realized in human community by human law. 
civil and ecclesiastical. But because of the fact that we're ordered to an ultimate end, which goes beyond us, and because of the fact that in the weakness of the original sin, we cannot find our way to ultimate clarity and divine providence, God himself also gave the revealed law, also called divine positive law, which comprises the Old Testament and the New Testament and is ordered to Christ as the Redeemer. The Catechism explains in 1953, the moral law finds its fullness and its unity in Christ. Jesus Christ is in person the way of perfection. He is the end or purpose of the law, for only he teaches and bestows the justice of God, which the law is ordered to. Now then, on Mount Sinai, therefore, God, who had progressively prepared a community through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, to receive this aid, this light, which was divinely given, to prepare the community for the reception of the Messiah, on Mount Sinai, God gave the old law. The old law surpasses human law. It also implements and surpasses the natural law because it makes absolutely clear how the precepts that are given to Israel relate to God, who is the creator of the world. And it also prepares them for a supernatural end. The old law establishes a community which is not a political community. The old law rather establishes a community of divine election, which is a promised community given to Abraham, promised to Abraham. And the old law, according to both St. Paul and St. Stephen, is promulgated by angels because of its origin and supernatural destiny. This old law perfectly expresses the mind of God and prepares for a community which will be a commonwealth of God. Now, God is the origin of all authority, but in the civil law, he's the origin of authority indirectly in all human laws through nature. In the case of the divine positive law, God himself directly establishes the community of Israel. This community is a commonwealth of God, or the Latin term is populus Dei, which anybody who knows anything about Vatican II will be familiar with as the people of God. In this people, God prepares a place from which the Messiah will come, because the old law in its primary prescriptions unifies together the consideration which the pagans could understand of God as the author of nature with what the Jews were meant to prepare for, God as the Father of Jesus Christ. In other words, monotheism is the principal commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and it's the foundation of the connection between the natural law and the divine law which Christ himself will fulfill. Obviously, if there were many gods, there couldn't be one father of the Messiah. So to say that the author of nature, which is one, is also the father of the Messiah, is to prepare the people. 
The natural law gives natural inclinations to our ultimate end, as expressed generally to do good and to avoid evil. The all law, given on Mount Sinai, presupposes this orientation, summarizes and restates the natural law in crystal clear terms in the general principles of the Ten Commandments. So therefore, the old law goes beyond the natural law as a medicinal aid, and the old law expresses what people probably could in general with a mixture of error understand about the natural law, but expresses and implements it in very clear terms and in very specific terms for the community of Israel. Traditionally speaking, the old law is divided into two tables. Now, why tables? Because Moses, by tradition, received two tablets of stone. The two tables refer to the first one, the commandments that have to do with God, one, two, and three, and the second one, the commandments that have to do with neighbor, which would be four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Traditionally speaking, these commandments are referred to in a distinction that has three parts. The old law contains three sorts of precepts. The first are moral precepts, which in general correspond to the natural law. Loving and worshiping God, honoring and respecting your neighbor, generally are the obligation of all human beings. Then, these prescriptions, the moral precepts, are made explicit for the community of Israel in the first table, which are called the ceremonial precepts, and refer to everything that has to do with the cult. Now, I don't mean cult in the sense of the occult or the Manson cult. I mean everything that has to do with the worship of a community, which is the people of God. The second table has to do with those commandments that have to do with living the life of the neighbor on the part of people who are a holy people of God. And these are generally referred to as juridical precepts. So they have to do with the neighbor. The ceremonial precepts implement the worship of a people specially established and chosen by God, a people consecrated. This consecration occurs by rituals established in the Old Testament in the books Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, like circumcision for the laity and ordination for the priests. The ceremonial law includes the use of all things in everyday use as a holy person in this community being prepared to be saved from the original sin would use them. Things like the Sabbath rest, like the clothing which a person is supposed to wear, the manner of purification after sexuality, the ritual washing of the cups and the glasses, the vestments of the priests when they celebrate the rituals of the law, etc., etc. Since God is the creator of the community and also its goal, the obedience called for by this law is not merely an exterior obedience, it's also an interior obedience. So one doesn't just do the rituals, one has to actually live, believe, and interiorly be formed by them. And the prophets were the ones who were always railing against the Israelites, merely practicing external conformity. Recently in the Mass, we read a reading from the prophet Amos, 
where he talks about the fact that the people go to the feasts, but they say, boy, let's get this over with as soon as possible because we got to get out and do business. And not only business, but we got to do business by oppressing the poor. He says you have to put your finger on the scale while you're weighing out the meat or whatever for the poor so that you'll cheat them. This is a person who externally conforms to the ceremonial precepts, but does not inwardly transform his heart. And the purpose of the law is the transformation of heart. The ceremonial precepts are exemplified and implied in the juridical precepts. There are beautiful juridical precepts in the Old Testament, which you won't find anywhere else. In any other law, to my knowledge, maybe there is one, human law, to show that this is a community of God. One of the more famous ones in the book of Deuteronomy is the precepts of the harvest. The owner of a field can take the first gleanings of the harvest for himself, but he has to leave the second gleaning for the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the orphan. The Old Testament precepts relate to each other in different ways. In the ceremonial precepts, the figurative meaning of the precept comes first, and then the literal meaning comes second. This is one of the reasons why Jesus has such difficulty with the Jews at his time, when some of them want to interpret the ceremonial precepts literally and forget about its figurative sense, like when Christ heals on the Sabbath. They say, every other day you can come to be healed, but not on this day. And Jesus says, well, what's the meaning of the Sabbath, except that it's directed to the healing of man in the state wounded in original sin. So why not heal on the Sabbath? But just the opposite is true when it comes to the juridical precepts. In the juridical law, the literal meaning comes first, kindness to the neighbor showed in actual deeds. And the figurative meaning in which the precept prefigures for example, what the next world will be like, this comes second. Now the whole history of Israel is all ordered toward a gradual education of man by God to prepare him to receive Christ himself. But this preparation, which is medicinal, isn't a medicine that can completely heal the problem. Remember, it only heals the defect of ignorance. It doesn't heal the defect of malice. St. Thomas says the old law is like a medicine which helps a man in his sickness, but does not cure the sickness in and of itself. The old law was meant to remove sin, and so its principal purpose was to remove obstacles to the Holy Spirit. It did this principally in establishing monotheism. But the old law itself, neither the ceremonies nor the juridical precepts, could actually give the means which were necessary for the final interior living of it. That means being grace. And so the old law does not in itself confer grace. St. Paul says in Hebrews 7.19, for the law made nothing perfect, because it did not give man grace. And therefore the ceremonies of the law are said to kill. St. Paul says the law kills. Why? Well, it doesn't kill in the sense that it causes us to be without grace. It kills as an occasion. Because it demands grace in order to be lived fully, a grace which it cannot confer, the law becomes an occasion, a greater occasion of sin. Because now the people are less excused since they have more 
knowledge. Jesus says about Capernaum, you remember, that it will not go as hard with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment as it does with the people in Capernaum. Why? Because they knew better and they rejected the Messiah, whereas the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had at least the excuse of ignorance. Now, does this mean that it wasn't possible to be saved under the old law? Well, not at all, because the old law was ordered to the Messiah. Those who lived the precepts of the old law through a further aid which the old law sought to induce, an assistance given by God available with the law, that is to say through faith, could experience grace by faith in the future Messiah. And then the law became a testament to their faith in the future Messiah. In fact, all things in the law witness to the future Messiah. The ceremonial precepts are all connected and ordered to Christ. Remember, Christ is the new temple. When Christ goes, for example, on the Feast of the Presentation to the temple, it's the Lord of the temple who created the world, finally going to the temple, to put an end, to begin an end to the ceremonial observances of the law, which will finally end in the crucifixion. You remember in the crucifixion, when Christ died on the cross, at least in the gospel according to St. John, the veil in the temple is rent in two, which is the fact that the sacrifices of the old law now no longer signify. And Simeon realizes that Jesus is the one who will put an end to this, because he says in his canticle, now you could let your servant go in peace. Your word, the Torah, has been fulfilled because my eyes have now seen your salvation. And then he uses two very interesting words about Christ. He uses the word light of revelation to the Gentiles, which in Greek is the phos, and the light of revelation to the Gentiles fulfills the natural law's promise what the Gentiles were looking for, and the glory, which is related to the Shekinah, the glory of God that covers the mountain, the glory of God that fills the angels when they appear in the sky, the glory that fills the temple when the sacrifices are performed, and the glory of your people, Israel, so that all the actions of the cult end in Christ. The same was true with respect to the juridical law. The law predisposes us to receive Christ by turning from idols to God and encourages us to practice the virtues with others of people who believe in monotheism, people who believe that there's one God, and practice these virtues with others. In the reading we read in the Gospel recently for Mass, we had the famous parable of Dives and Lazarus, the rich man and the poor beggar. And you remember the rich man who feasts, if he were just a glutton, he wouldn't be so bad, but he feasts to the expense of the poor man Lazarus. And when they both die, one goes to the bosom of Abraham, which is the preparation for heaven, and the other one doesn't. And there's an infinite gap between the two. Now, the rich man who's suffering in torment asks Abraham to show that this is the fulfillment of the juridical precepts of the law, to send Lazarus to relieve his sufferings, and Abraham says he can't. And so then the rich man says, but if only someone send him then please, have him rise from the dead, 
and have him go to tell my brothers to warn them about this. And Abraham answers, they have the law and the prophets. And he says, oh yes, but if someone rises from the dead, then they'll be convinced. And Abraham says, and this is in almost prophetic preparation for Christ's resurrection from the dead to us, they have the law and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, they won't listen to someone, even if he rises from the dead. Salvation in Christ, therefore, is the purpose of the old law. The law is a tutor. Who is the tutor trying to instruct children in what it means to be spiritually adults? That is to say, people who are spiritually children, people who are materialists. The old law was not sufficient to give grace and salvation, but those who believed, who were given the assistance of faith along with it, were justified by this faith. The old law was imperfect, but it prepared the way for the perfect salvation of the human race. St. Augustine says that there are basically three stages in the law. The first is the time without the law, which is the time from Adam to Moses. In this stage, what he calls a day, the three days in preparation for the resurrection, ignorance predominated and men needed enlightenment. The divinely revealed law brought this. The second day is the day of the Old Testament, from Moses to Christ. Here, enlightenment was supplied by ignorance, and what was poor ignorance, and what was invincible ignorance, now became resolved by the light of the law. Absolutely clear how the transgressions against God and neighbor here relate to the one God, the Creator. But this law didn't in itself give the remedy for malice. It did not give grace. And so we need the third day, salvation, from Christ's coming until the second coming, in which they that are humble experience knowledge in its fullness through the grace of Christ. Now, you can see the tragic difficulty of the people in the old law by the fact that they were spiritually very immature. They were materialists, and God was trying to educate them to being adults. This is the reason for two things in the old law. The first is that just like little kids, God has to encourage them to do good by material promises, rewards, and punishments. So, for example, in the book of Job, when Job survives his temptation, he's given back twice the goods that he lost. This is very Old Testament because people are materialistic. The second point is that just like little kids, you know, you can't just tell them once, don't put your hand on the stove, don't stand near the radiator, be on time, get up. You have to tell them many, many times. Whereas with adults, once is normally sufficient. So just like with little kids, there isn't only one or a few precepts in the old law, but there are many. When Jesus was asked, what are the two great commandments in the law, the rabbis at the time, I believe, said that there were 600 positive precepts and 600 negative precepts in the law. And Jesus was asked to choose, of all 1,200, which were the two greatest. Now, of course, when he did choose, the doctor of the law said that he had chosen rightly. 
But you can see the difficulty of the people who lived in this time. When Christ comes, the old law is fulfilled. And another period in time in salvation is begun. This period is called the period of the new law of Christ. Now, is the new law a written law or only a law of the Spirit? When St. Thomas asks this question, he answers by saying, each thing must be identified according to what is most powerful in it. In the new law, it is the grace of the Holy Spirit himself, given by faith in Christ. Remember, in the old law, the people were looking forward to a future Messiah. In the new law, the Messiah has come. And through the Messiah's flesh, the Holy Spirit is brought to us. In the Messiah, we find the unity of the three cultic mediators of the society of Israel, the priest, the prophet, and the king. In the old law, faith is the origin of grace. In the new law, grace is the origin of faith. Because the new law of Christ includes the grace of the Holy Spirit in it, something the old law could only look forward to. Now, there are people who say, well, if that's the case, then all you have to do is be spirit-filled, but there's nothing written down or prescribed like the 1,200 precepts of the old law, positive and negative. In other words, there shouldn't be any absolutes and morals. There shouldn't be any works that one has to do in order to experience the action of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are works connected with the new law, sacraments, and juridical works, ceremonial and juridical precepts, just like there are works connected with the old law, but with this difference. Since these works are connected to Christ fulfilled, they are not the central character of the new law of Christ. They are rather what St. Thomas calls dispositive. They prepare the people to receive grace, that would be the sacraments, and executive. They have to do with the people carrying out the grace which they receive. So the new law would be a written law that would contain written precepts, but as actions which are preparatory to receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit and directive of those actions which befitted a person who had the grace of the Holy Spirit. The new law of Christ, therefore, is both an inward law and a written law, whereas the old law was only a written law that encouraged people to inward practice. Everything in the gospel, that's the new law of Christ, disposes us to receive and act according to the grace of the Holy Spirit. The new law, therefore, justifies, the old law did not, but it justifies not because of the written letter. The written letter is just as difficult in the new law as it is in the old law as far as justification is concerned, but it justifies because it includes in it the grace of the Holy Spirit. If all we were to do was follow the letter of the new law, without grace, we wouldn't experience the new law of Christ and we wouldn't be justified. The new law presumes that we live in spiritual communion with the Blessed Trinity, and it is this which gives it life. Those, therefore, who sin under the new law 
must in a sense be more ungrateful than those who sin under the old law because they have better promises. The new law of Christ is primarily the movement of the Holy Spirit through grace. Now in the Catechism, both of these facts are very well expressed. In number 1961, the Catechism begins to treat of the revealed law. And probably the best, the most interesting number for this is number 1963. According to Christian tradition, the law, that's the old law, is wholly spiritual and good, yet still imperfect. Like a tutor, it shows what must be done, but does not of itself give the strength, the grace of the Holy Spirit to fulfill it. Because of sin, which it cannot remove, it remains a law of bondage. According to St. Paul, its special function is to denounce and disclose sin, which constitutes a law of concupiscence in the human heart. However, the law remains the first stage on the way to the kingdom. It prepares and disposes the chosen people and each Christian for conversion and faith in the Savior Christ. 1964, the old law is in preparation for the gospel. The law is a pedagogy and prophecy of things to come. It prophesies and presages the work of liberation from sin, which will be fulfilled in Christ. The traditional terminology used for this is that the old law is the shadow, the Latin word for this is the umbra, the new law is the image, the Latin word for this is the imago, and the final purpose of both is the vision of God, which is the veritas or the truth itself. Relating the Old and New Testament together then, we can say this. There were under the regiment of the Old Covenant people who possessed charity and grace of the Holy Spirit and longed above all for the spiritual and eternal promises by which they were associated with the new law. In other words, there are people living under the dispensation of the old law who were men already of the new law because of their faith. Conversely, there exist carnal men under the new covenant, still distanced from the perfection of the new law. The fear and punishment of certain temporal promises have been necessary, even under the new covenant, to incite them to virtuous works. In other words, there are people who live in the dispensation of the New Testament after Christ has risen from the dead who still have to be treated like people under the old law because they don't live from love, they only live from fear. In any case, even though the old law prescribed charity, it did not give the Holy Spirit through whom God's charity has been poured into our hearts. The new law does. In 1965, the new law, or the law of the gospel, is the perfection here on earth of the divine law, natural and revealed. The new law is the grace of the Holy Spirit given to the faithful through faith in Christ. It works through charity. It uses the Sermon on the Mount to teach us what must be done and makes use of the sacraments to give us the grace to do it. So the new law includes works which are dispositive to grace, and involve living the life of grace. And by the way, the old law is given on Mount Sinai in fire and cloud and glory to Moses, who is merely its receiver and who helps in writing the precepts which implement it. 
the new law of Christ is established by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus himself ascends the mountain, just as Moses ascended the mountain, only instead of receiving tablets of stone now, Jesus, who is the living Word of God in human nature, sits down in the chair of authority and from his human mouth explains what the law and its final living really are. You have heard it said, you shall not kill, but I say to you. He doesn't say God says to you. He exercises both the ministry of Moses and the ministry of the prophets because he is the word of God himself. In the Catechism, it explains the law of the gospel, 1968, fulfills the commandments of the law. The Lord's Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral precepts of the old law, releases their hidden potential and has new demands arise from them. It reveals their entire divine and human truth. Now, why wasn't the new law given at the beginning of time? Why did God allow the human race to wander for centuries, first in ignorance, then give them the truth, but then allow them to wander for more centuries in weakness, in malice? You know, the Jews had this law. They were supposed to meditate on it. But, you know, they were constantly breaking it. They were constantly breaking monotheism because they were setting up idols and rival shrines to God. And they were constantly breaking the juridical precepts because they were constantly treating their neighbors with contempt. The reason is because for the law to be given, for Christ to come, sin had to be removed. This was an impediment to receiving the Holy Spirit. Nothing is brought to perfection instantaneously. We learn little by little. You know, it would be nice for us to sit down in the class and on the first day understand everything. It doesn't happen. Everything in nature happens little by little. You know, you can plant the seed. You can want it to bear fruit in one hour. Well, you're going to have to wait for the whole season. The same is true when it comes to man's flowering in grace. The seed is planted, but it has to grow little by little. And the same is true with us learning about who we are and why we're here. Another reason is that the new law is a law of grace. It's a gift. In order for men to be open to receiving gifts from God, they had to realize that they needed Him. And you know that one of the principal difficulties present in us is the fact that we want to act as though we don't need God. We want to act as though we're the master of our fate, the captain of our soul, and we don't need anybody else. God allowed the human race to wander, and the Jews, to wander for a long time in malice and weakness because he wanted to prove to them that they needed a redeemer. You know, one of the big sins of the Pharisees was the fact that they didn't think they needed a Redeemer. They thought they were justified in themselves. Now, one further point that's very important for us today. In the 20th century, we're almost at the year 2000. And there are people who have this millennialist idea of the world and think that some great cataclysm is going to occur. There are some people who think that there'll be a more perfect manifestation of the Holy Spirit given on earth than the one given to us in the new law of Christ. You know, there are charismatic figures who think 
that they have a greater expression or experience of the Holy Spirit than the ones taught to us by the church. Now, this is a very old error. In the Middle Ages, it was expressed by an abbot named Joachim del Fiore, who taught that there were three ages of the world. The first was the age of the Old Testament and the age of the Father. The second was the age of the New Testament and the age of the Son. But this would give rise here on earth to a third age, which would be the age of the Holy Spirit, an age in which there would be no physical mediation between God and man anymore, an age in which there would be no hierarchical church anymore. Now, St. Thomas maintains that there are indeed three ages of the world in answer to Joachim del Fiore. The first age is indeed the age of the old law, but this is not just the age of the Father. Since the purpose of the old law, the teaching about the Father, the one God, was to prepare the people for the Son, the old law is fulfilled when the Messiah comes. The second age of the world is indeed the age of the new law of Christ. But this is not just an age of Jesus and fleshly mediation. It's also an age of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Jesus' work on earth isn't completed until he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So therefore, on this earth, there will be no more complete teaching concerning the nature of God and concerning the Holy Spirit's actions than the one brought to us in Jesus Christ. Well, I said there was a third age of the world. What would that age be? This is an age which is more perfect than our experience of God here on earth, but it's not here. It's heaven when we actually see God face to face. Then the sacraments will cease, but not here on earth. There will be no more perfect revelation of the Blessed Trinity than the one given to the Apostles on Pentecost Sunday. And while we are here, it is necessary that we see that the Kingdom of Christ, the Gospel of Christ, is the same as the Gospel of the Kingdom, and that the Church and baptism by water is the same as baptism by the Holy Spirit because it brings the new law of Christ to us and prepares us for heaven. The Carmelite nun Elizabeth of the Trinity, when she entered her community at the age of 19, was given a test. You can see the difference between the beginning of the 20th century and the end of it because she who lived at the beginning of the 20th century was asked if she was sometimes homesick for heaven. Now you know Today, they have to give them psychological tests to see if they're dysfunctional, coming from dysfunctional families. Elizabeth of the Trinity answered, in the name of the new law of Christ, I am sometimes homesick for heaven, but except for the vision by grace, I possess everything that is in heaven already here on earth. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.